Our scripture reading today is from Luke 21, 5 through 9, and 34 through 36. This is found on page 880 in your Pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take one home as a gift from us to you. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Megan. Well, good morning. Welcome uh, to Christ Community. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community, and it's so good to see uh, each of you here this morning. And if uh, this is your first time here, we're so glad that you're with us. If this is your first time back, and I've talked to several of you this morning where this is your first Sunday back in, in a long time, maybe a, even a year, uh, we're just so glad that you're here with us today and that you're back in this space. Um, able to, to join with us in this way. And so as we embark on our message this morning, just want to pause and, and pray and ask uh, for God's help in this, that we acknowledge that he is here with us, um, that he's been speaking to us already through the songs that we've heard, um, but we also want to hear afresh from him in his word, the Bible. So let's pray and ask for ears to hear this morning. Father in heaven, we do pray that uniquely in this moment as we've gathered together as your people that uh, your uh, presence would be palpable to us. I don't know uh, for each sitting in these pews right now where they've come from in their week emotionally, mentally, physically, um, but wherever we are, whether we're experiencing great joy or deep sorrow, I pray that you would meet us now and encourage us and comfort us in just the way that we need. And that you would do that through your word. In Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, growing up, uh, my dad loved National Geographic magazine, and uh, he, he passed on that love to me. I inherited that from him the last few years. Uh, my wife has gotten me a subscription to National Geographic for Christmas, and it's always a, a fun day in the month when the new issue comes, and so just something I, I just enjoy reading and learning about. I've always loved geography and science and nature, and so I always love reading that. And I remember when my, as a kid, my dad would, would get these, and one of the things that he was always interested in was National Geographic's coverage of, of Bob Ballard's uh, search for and then exploration of the Titanic wreck. And he was just really into that history. In fact, I think he still has this, uh, this copy. This is from 1985, uh, the National Geographic, when uh, it was the issue where they kind of published the moment that John, uh, Bob Ballard had found 
the, the wreck of the Titanic, and then, you know, subsequent issues went on to kind of record his exploration of that wreck. And so he's just always had the fascination with the Titanic. And uh, when I was about, well, it was about five, six years ago, 2015, when I was on sabbatical, I had the chance to travel to Belfast, Northern Ireland, which is where C.S. Lewis was born. That's why I was there. I was doing the study tour about Lewis's life, but also in Belfast is where the Titanic was built. That's where there's big shipyards in Belfast. It was one of the major industries that was there uh, in the early 1900s with shipbuilding. They have a, an amazing museum. That's a picture of me standing in front of the Titanic Museum there, uh, where you can explore the history of, of, of the ship and, and lots of artifacts and that kind of thing. It's an amazing place. But this, the story of the Titanic has captivated uh, us for over a hundred years now. It was sailed first in 1912, and in the decade kind of leading up to it, it was this real sense of, of optimism and technological progress and, and encouragement about what we could achieve and industrial revolution and all of that. And there was this promise, or you know the story, the Titanic, that we are building an unsinkable ship. An unsinkable ship that on its maiden voyage struck an iceberg and sunk to the bottom of the North Atlantic Sea. And, and they were so confident in the unsinkability of the ship that when the distress signals first started being reported in New York that the ship was in trouble, the vice president of the White Star Line that operated the ship was telling reporters in New York that, yes, we're getting distress signals from the ship, but we have absolute confidence that this is an unsinkable ship. By the time he was making those statements... The ship was already on the bottom of the Atlantic. You know, we are all looking for that unsinkable thing that we can put our confidence, our hope, our trust in. We're all looking for that unsinkable thing, a place to find security. We're all looking for security. And that's not a bad thing. We were wired, we were created to look for security, for connection, for a place of safety and rest. We were designed that way. In fact, increasingly, uh, as you know, neurobiologists study even how our brains work, in kids in particular, if you follow the work of Dan Siegel and others, they just point out even kids, little kids, need the four S's. They need to be safe, they need to be seen, soothed, and secure. This is part of how to make a a secure connection with their caregiver that leads to to flourishing in their life. We are wired to look for and find security. But but the question is, where do we find that security? Where do we look to to find that sense of security? And I think for all of us, certainly in the last 12 months, we've had a sense of security rocked, right? Right? I think even in the last 40 or 50 years, as the information uh, available to us and the news available to us has become so rapidly accessible, you can see the tragedies happening around the world, around the country instantly on social media, in cable news, and uh, all of that is immediately accessible to it. It shakes a sense of security because there's always terrible things happening somewhere, and we are more aware of that now than ever, whether in our own backyard or across the globe. And then obviously... (laughs) At a most basic level in these last 12 months, we've seen how just tiny virus has totally upended our lives and shaken our sense of security. 
So the question is for us, as followers of King Jesus, where should we look for security? Now, if you've been around church for more than 15 minutes, you probably know that the right, the right answer is, we should look to Jesus for our security. Like that's, we, we know that kind of Sunday school answer to that question. But how does that actually work on Monday? How does that actually work in real life? And, and as we look here at Luke chapter 21, what we want to look at for Jesus is how we're going to see that the sense of security that we have is, is, needs to be tied not only to Jesus as king, but also to his kingdom, the kingdom that he is bringing. And I hope that if you, you only take away one thing from this morning, if you only write down one thing today, I hope it is this, that in the end, only Jesus and his kingdom will be standing. That only Jesus and his kingdom will be standing in the end. That's our big takeaway from this morning. That's the bottom line, that only Jesus and his kingdom will be standing in the end. They're the only secure thing. And we're going to see, though, as we first look at Luke chapter 21, that there's a crumbling sense of security for the contemporary listeners of Jesus at this moment, that they had a false sense of security. They were putting their hope in the wrong thing. Now, if you've been following along with Luke uh, with us over the past few weeks, you, you may have noticed this, but just to review kind of where we're at, we're in this series in the Gospel of Luke, which we're calling Rediscovering the Kingdom. We're looking afresh at what did Jesus teach? What is his kingdom all about? What is the good news? What's the gospel that Jesus preached? What is his kingdom like that he's bringing? How does that fit into our lives? And, uh, you know, oftentimes the gospels have been described as passion narratives with long introductions, meaning the passion narrative is the story of Jesus actually dying on the cross. And if you look at proportionally in the Gospels, the timeline really slows down around this final week of Jesus's life, where you get like the first, you know, two years or more of his entire life in the first part of the Gospel, you, almost the second half, and Mark in particular, the entire second half of the Gospel is devoted to this last week. And a similar thing happens in Luke, that it's moving slowly, slowly, and we've noticed this language of drawing near. From about chapter 18, this language of drawing near gets repeated over and over again, that Jesus is getting closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem. He's drawing near. And a couple weeks ago, we watched as he entered into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, riding in, declaring to anyone who had eyes to see that he is the true king who's coming to Jerusalem. And ever since that moment of him entering in on the donkey, he's been spending his days teaching in the temple courts. But in the evening, he's withdrawn out to stay the night on the Mount of Olives outside of the city. So this is the pattern. He's teaching during the day, going out during the night. So here in Luke chapter 21, we find him again in the temple during the day teaching. And this is what we hear in verse 5. And while some of them were speaking of the temple, they, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. So this is the context. They're in that moment. They're looking around at the temple, and they're pointing out, this is, they're, look, at, look at Jesus, look at how amazing this place is. Look at how stunning this temple is. Now, for a lot of us, we might not be familiar with the kind of the whole history of the temple. So one, this is going to help us understand a little bit of what's happening in this text. I want to give us a little brief history of the temple. So the temple was the place, kind of the hot spot of God's presence among his people. It was the place where God's presence was seen to dwell among his people. Now, earlier in the Old Testament, God rescues his people out of Egypt. This is the book of Exodus. 
and brings them into the wilderness. And we're first given instructions, Moses is given instructions to build a tent, right? It's called the tabernacle. And that's the place, it's this movable temple in a, in a way, while the people are moving around in the wilderness, God's presence with them. But then you get to, fast forward in their story, you get to King David, and David establishes Jerusalem as the capital city of God's people, uh, Israel, and his son Solomon builds the first permanent temple facility. So this is the first temple, Solomon's temple, and it's a glorious temple, and it, it lasts for a long time, but eventually God's people, they rebel against him, and they end up in exile in Babylon. And the Babylonians completely destroy Solomon's temple, wipe it out. They're there for 70 years in Babylon, in exile, and then they're allowed to go back. Persia takes over, they send some of the people back out of exile, back to their homeland, and they rebuild, this is like I call like a half temple. It's called, it's called Zerubbabel's temple, but they, you read about it in Nehemiah, um, Ezra, they rebuild a small temple on that site, and they actually talk about, you read this, the account of it, and like some people are, are rejoicing because the temple's being rebuilt, other people are crying because it's nowhere near what Solomon's temple was. And the rejoicing and the crying are intermixed, and you can't tell a difference. And that temple, we don't know much about. It doesn't last for very long. At some point between kind of the intertestamental period, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it, it eventually is, is destroyed. It's never really rebuilt. But in B.C. 20, 20 B.C., King Herod comes to rule over this area of the world, and he builds a temple, which is known as the Second Temple. So maybe even here sometimes the language of Second Temple Judaism or the Second Temple period. That's what they're talking about. So Herod builds this magnificent temple for the Jews in Jerusalem. And this is the temple where Zechariah, at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, he's serving inside the temple, and what, an angel appears to him and promises that he and his wife Elizabeth are going to have a child. That child is John the Baptist, this is the temple where Jesus is brought on the eighth day after he's born to be dedicated to the Lord, where Anna and Simeon uh, see him. They've been there, these senior saints who have been waiting at the temple to see the Messiah come, and, and that happens there. It's the same temple 12 years later when Jesus as a 12-year-old is in uh, Jerusalem for the Passover festival, and his parents are heading back home, and they're like, wait a second, where's Jesus? He's not with us. And where is he? He's in the temple, amazing the teachers of the law with his understanding this is the temple that we're talking about. And this is where this, this is happening right now. Jesus is speaking in the temple. Now, that temple took about a decade, maybe about 15 years to build the main structure of it. So by the time that Jesus is born, the main structure of the temple is completed. But they continued to add decoration and ornation and, and completing of all of the architectural nuance. That lasted for 70 years. It wasn't totally completed until about... AD 66. So just to give you a sense of where we're at right now, this is AD 30, where Jesus is at, about. So the temple's still under construction. Again, the main edifice has been completed for a number of years, but they're still adorning it. They're still decorating it. They're still adding uh, decor and design elements to this for a long time. This is what's going on. And there's this sense among the people at this time that if the temple, this grand temple has been restored, 
then surely this is the moment, right, when God is going, like things are lining up for God to come, rescue us from the Romans, that this temple is an unsinkable thing that they were putting their security in. The temple was their Titanic. This grand temple building was their Titanic, that this is unsinkable. This will never be destroyed. Who would want to destroy this? Even other nations have contributed, you know, goods and and materials to, to build this place. And surely the fact that it is in place is a sign that God is about to deliver us from Rome. So I say all that to help you feel the impact of what Jesus says in verse 6. He says this. Let me read verse 5 again just to give you the context. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, Jesus, said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left one, here stone, one stone here upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus says, your unsinkable ship is going to sink. Your unsinkable ship is going to sink. And if the temple is destroyed and it's at the center of Jerusalem, that means all of Jerusalem is going to be wiped out. And that's where Jesus continues to talk. We don't have time to walk through all of 21 today, but that's what he unpacks in the rest of chapter 21, that the whole of of Jerusalem is going to be put under siege. And we need to ask the question then here as well, how is Jesus teaching? What mode of teaching is he using? Is he he kind of teaching like a general idea? Is he talking about predicting specific events? How How is Jesus teaching here? And I think there's, Jesus is using kind of two modes of teaching here. One is prophetic promise. He is actually predicting an event that's going to happen. We're going to get this in a moment, but this is a, actually comes to fulfillment in AD 70. The temple is destroyed. Jerusalem is wiped out by the Romans. So he's using the mode of prophetic promise. He's actually making a, a, a promise about what is going to happen in the future. But he's also in this chapter using kind of the mode of apocalyptic speech as well. And we spend a lot of time, if you want to go back in in the book of Revelation, talking about what is apocalypse. The heart of apocalypse means to uncover or to reveal. So Jesus is also revealing how his kingdom, unveiling how his kingdom is breaking in in this moment. That's what he's doing in this time. So he's revealing what God is doing now. And so the question, though, that his disciples immediately ask, and and we want to ask too, right, is, well, Jesus, when is this going to (laughs) happen? When is it going to be that the temple is is torn down and overthrown? And for us, more, it's the question is, is Jesus talking about the end times here? And is he speaking to us? And are we in the end times in this moment? Which is an understandable question for any generation to ask. But for those of us who have gone through the last 12 months, you know, it makes sense. Uh, We've had a global pandemic. We've had political and civil unrest. We've had reports of murder hornets. I mean, it's, it's a fair question to ask. Is this, is this the end times that we're in in this moment? And I think the biblical writers would answer that question both yes and no. Are we right now, is, is Jesus going to come back, you know, t- tomorrow night? I mean, he could. But we have been in the period of the biblical writers, from their perspective, we've been in the period of the end times for the last 2,000 years meaning the end of the age is the last stage in the unfolding of God's plan before the new heavens and the new earth. So all this time from Jesus' resurrection and ascension 
to when the moment that he returns is the end times. It is the last age. It's the final age. So yes, are we living in the end times? In that sense, yes. Um, Are specific events happening in this particular moment indication that Jesus is going to come back tomorrow or in yet a hundred years? That's what we just don't know. And Jesus says we don't know the time or the hour. But what's key here is that Jesus is predicting in these events, and, and, and scholars from all different, you know, whether, and if you don't even know what I'm talking about when I say millennial debates, don't even worry about it, but if, you, if you're in understanding when is the millennial, like all scholars agree that Jesus in this particular moment is not talking about the millennium. He's actually talking about the events of AD 70. What's going to happen when the Romans come and overthrow Jerusalem and literally tear the temple down, just like Jesus says here. Now, this is one of those moments where we have to ask the question, how could this happen? I mean, because that's the question they're asking. And this is Jerusalem. This is Israel. This is God's people. How could they be overthrown? How could they be destroyed? And just a reminder to us that no community, no government, no nation, no institution is so secure, so special that God won't allow them to experience consequences or even judgment when they turn away from him. And here's the reality. The people of Jerusalem at this time, they wanted a military king. Someone who was going to come and start a military response to Rome. And Jesus is bringing a kingdom. He's been very clear about that. But his kingdom is first, in the first iteration, it's a, it's a spiritual reality. It is a kingdom uh, that is upside down. It's a paradoxical kingdom that looks very different. And so they want the kingdom, but they don't want Jesus as king. And you cannot have the kingdom without the king. So they reject the king who's come to Jerusalem. And eventually it's going to lead to this city, this temple being rejected by God. Which brings us to, again, to our main idea this morning, that only Jesus... And his kingdom will be standing in the end. Only Jesus and his kingdom will be standing in the end. Now, the question also is raised for us, if that's true, if only Jesus and his kingdom will stand in the end, if we align ourselves with his kingdom and have him as our king, does that mean that we won't experience suffering or persecution or hardship uh, along the way because, you know, his kingdom is going to be triumphant? Is that if we align ourselves with him, will we be protected from that? And Jesus is really clear in verses 10 through 12 that that's not going to be the case, at least certainly for this first generation of Jesus followers, that they're actually going to experience all kinds of hardship. But what he does do is he reframes completely what suffering is. This is not actually, uh, you know, it's, it's opposition, but it's not going to be a hindrance. It's actually going to be an opportunity. So look at verse 13. So in verses, again, 10 through 12, Jesus is describing all these things that are going to take place. And then he gets to verse 13, and he says this, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. So settle therefore in your minds, not to meditate before how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and a wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand. None of your adversaries will be able to withstand. So Jesus here is promising 
that there is going to have hardship that comes, but it's going to be an opportunity. It's going to be an opportunity for the gospel. It's going to be an opportunity for you in the midst of this. And what's really cool about the fact that what we have in our Bibles is that we know in the book of Acts that this actually comes true, that Jesus' promises come true. Because in the book of Acts, which records uh, Jesus's uh, ascension after the resurrection, and then the early part of the church, and again, it's actually written by Luke. So Luke wrote two volumes. He wrote the gospel according to Luke. So he writes his account of Jesus's life. And then he also writes the sequel of the book of Acts. And what you see in Acts is that this actually takes place, that, that people, followers of Jesus, they are opposed by these different uh, government officials and different, and, but it becomes an opportunity, right? We see this with Paul. We see this with Peter. They actually are able to bear witness to the good news about Jesus and his kingdom. So this unfolds. Now again, just to remind us of our timeline, Jesus is speaking here. This is about 80, this is mid 80, 80, 30-ish. Then Luke is writing these words down, what we have in our Bibles, he wrote in AD 55. And then you don't see the fulfillment of Jesus's promise of the destruction of the temple until AD 70. So we don't have the destruction of the temple recorded in our Bibles, but we do have it recorded in uh, history, uh, in particular the Jewish historian Josephus recounts the history of this siege and destruction of Jerusalem. And it was an awful time. Uh, estimate a million Jews were slaughtered in that siege over a period of years. A hundred thousand were taken captive. In the part, that end of the siege where they, the city was totally cut off from food supplies. The people in the city resorted to cannibalism. It was awful, awful event. And in a way, what brought that event to pass was that the people of Jerusalem got the military revolution that they wanted. Again, if you go back and, and read the, the history, the Jewish history at that time, the reason that the Romans came and laid siege to the city was that there were multiple military uprising against Rome from the Jewish people. They, they tried the way that they wanted. They, they didn't follow Jesus' way. They tried the way of military force, and it brings down the entire force of the Roman Empire on them, and it, they're destroyed. Which kind of raises the question too, is this a moment of, of punishment for the city or is this judgment? And let me draw a distinction between those two. Punishment is God sort of actively saying, I'm going to actively intervene to punish the city. Judgment being more of this category of, I'm just going to let you experience the outcome of your actions. And I think probably a little bit of both is at work here, but in a way, they are just experiencing the, the consequences of rebelling against the Roman Empire. And that's, sometimes God allows that in, in our lives individually as well as in um, broader institutions and countries that it, there's just moments where they just experience the natural consequences, outcomes of their actions. So the question then comes for us, though. It's a lot of great history, Bill. Like this is, maybe this is interesting. Maybe you're not interested in it at all. But what does this matter for me tomorrow? Like how do we still find security in Jesus and his kingdom today. And that's where we want to go next here. And the answer is found really at the end of the chapter in verses 34 through 36, where Jesus is speaking. He says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. 
for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now that command that Jesus gives right there in the very beginning of keep watch on yourselves or you know, watch, watch yourselves, it's, uh, you know, this, it's in the present tense, and it's an imperative, which just means it's a command, but it's a present tense, which means that it's not just sort of a one-off, like, hey, you know, watch out today, but like always be in a place of watching yourself, continuously be doing this, always be in a place of being alert, always be in a place of looking out at all times. And so the question that I want to ask for us here as we think about what does this mean for my life today? when I go to school or work tomorrow? What are the ways that we start to lose focus? Where do we start to to lose this concentration? Um, Where do we stop being alert? How do we start falling asleep? And Jesus lists a few things here. One of them, though, is he uses, he kind of sums sums it up in verse 36 with this language of the cares of this life. The cares of this life. And that actually echoes language that Jesus used earlier in the Gospel of Luke. So back in chapter 8, he tells this parable. It's probably one of the most famous parables of Jesus. It's the parable of the sower and the seed. If you've uh, read the Gospels at all, you, you may, may remember this. But Jesus tells a story. The sower, he goes out, he shows, sows seeds, and it falls on these different types of soil. So some falls on the road and the birds take it away. Some falls uh, on the, the dry ground, or the ground, but it, the sun bakes it and it goes away. Others, it grows up in thorns. And then there's the good soil. But notice when Jesus interprets that parable, when he talks about what fell among the thorns, this is what he says. This is Luke chapter 8, verse 14. And Jesus says, and as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but who go on their ways and are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. Jesus seems to think that there's something about the cares of this life that get in the way, that have the potential to make us not alert for what he's doing. Now, he lists a couple other things here, and the first one is dissipation, (laughs) which I had to look that word up in the English dictionary. I don't know if that's a word you use often, dissipation. It's not a word I use, and so I was like, I wonder, I just need to look up in an English dictionary, what does dissipation mean? And I even looked at a couple different English translations as well. I mean, it's good to read a variety of translations. This is the English Standard Version. Sometimes it's language is not always as contemporary, but I looked at, you know, NIV, a few others. A few others use carousing, uh, which again, carousing, I don't know if you use carousing uh, as a word a lot. I don't use carousing as a word a lot. So I was like trying to dig in. What is this? And it, it's related to this idea of, of drunkenness or, or kind of wildness or partying or, or something like that. And I think Jesus is both literally warning us, right? When you are drunk or you are high, like you are not as alert, right? And this is why you don't drive a car when you're drunk, why you don't operate heavy machinery when you're on pain meds, right? You're you're physically not as alert. And so I think Jesus is, yes, in a literal sense, reminding us that if you are drunk, if you are high, you're going to have a harder time being a follower of Jesus and watching out for what's going on. But I think there's also a broader sense in which he's saying, because this connects to the cares of this life, that there is a way that the cares of this life can put us in a place of not being alert, where it is so easy to get caught into a trap of not having a horizon for our hope, for our expectation that goes beyond this life. Um, philosopher Charles Taylor, who kind of describes, he's got this massive book called The Secular Age, and he describes what is it like to live in, in our culture at this time. 
And one of the big things he points out is that it's very easy for us to live in our cultural moment and be content and happy without anything beyond this life. And that we're some of the first people in human history to live in a society where you can kind of have like your, all of your needs met and your hope found just in this life. And you don't ever set your, your horizon for expectation or hope beyond it. And, and I see that. I feel that, right, in my own life and in others. But we're so easy to get focused on what I need to do is get good grades so that I can get into a good college, so that I can get the right job, and then eventually find the right person to marry, and then settle down with them and have kids so that they can do the same cycle. And, and our, our horizon of hope, our horizon of, of what our life is about, what we're aiming toward, never, and again, those are not bad things. Those are great things. Going to school, getting good grades, finding a good job, contributing, marrying, having kids. But if, if it never rises above just that kind of cycle, Jesus says you're not going to be alert to what's happening. And, and here's the thing, too. If you're in that cycle, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll be miserable. Sometimes things, Christians will say, like, oh, you're just going to be miserable without God. Actually, a lot of people, you can talk to a lot of people that maybe, like, actually, my life, you know, I went to a good school. I went to law school, med school. I've got a good job, good house, good family. I'm, I'm pretty happy, and I don't ever go to church. I don't have a relationship with God. Here's the thing. You can be happy when you're drunk. <laughs> a lot of times, at first, when you're drunk, you are really happy. but then the hangover comes later, right? So how do we stay awake? How do we avoid falling into this trap of, of having our soul existence only be focused on what Jesus says here, the cares of this life? Well, we, it, we need help from one another to do it. We can't do it on our own. And actually, the key thing that Jesus suggests here is he says, prayer. Verse 36, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape these things. And it's also key to notice that when Jesus says, watch yourself in verse 34, that he's addressing not just individuals, like, hey, Bill, you as individual, watch out for yourself. But he's addressing his whole crew of followers there. Watch out for one another, because we cannot do this on our own. We can't. Um, we cannot stay awake on our own. It actually reminds me of uh, over Thanksgiving, Rachel and I, we went to Big Bend National Park with, with our family. We spent Thanksgiving in Big Bend National. It was glorious. It was, you know, Big Bend National Park, if you don't know where it is, it's South Texas on the Rio Grande border of Mexico. It was warm. It was sunny. It was a perfect place to spend Thanksgiving during a pandemic. It was great. We we're camping outside. And we left on that trip after church on a Sunday. So wrapped up Sunday services, hopped in the car and started driving. And our hope was like, let's just drive as far as we can on Sunday. So we have a, a short drive on Monday. We get there, set up camp, all that. And I was doing really well. I was doing the driving. It was about 10 o'clock at night. The kids were asleep. Rachel even said, like, I'm going to go ahead and go to sleep. I was like, that's great. I had my audio book tuned in. I don't know what I was listening to. So it was a good book. And I was good. Um, but it's South Texas. There is nothing out there. Um, oil fields, that's it. And I'm just driving through the dark. And after a while, my audiobook is not cutting it. Eyelids are starting to get heavy. I was like, okay, I got to switch to something different. So uh, I switch over to Spotify. I turn on the Hamilton soundtrack, which, okay, that, that energized me for about another 30, 45 minutes. Um, just, you know, going with Hamilton. Uh, that, was, that was really doing it. But then even after a while, eyes are starting to get heavy again. Hamilton wasn't cutting it anymore. 
I even went back to some of my favorite songs in Hamilton, put those on repeat. But at a certain point, I was like, I gotta wake up Rachel and have her talk to me. Otherwise, I'm gonna run us off the road and fall asleep. And here's the thing, when you're in that part of Texas, it's not like, oh, I can just pull over at the next stop. I mean, there, it was like an hour till the, the closest hotel. It was like, I didn't have a choice to just sort of say like, well, we'll just pick the next closest hotel. There's nothing out there. And so I, I reach over and tap Rachel on the shoulder. And I said, sorry to wake you up, but like, you've got to, I was like, talk to me. Otherwise, I'm going to fall asleep. I couldn't stay awake on my own. I couldn't stay awake on my own. I needed someone else to help me stay alert. And friends, that's how Jesus has designed the community of faith to work. We cannot stay awake and alert on our own. We need one another to do this. That's been one of the hardest things, I think, about the last 12 months of this pandemic and all of the implications and the responses to it is that we've been more isolated than ever. We need people in our lives to help us stay awake, to stay alert. I think all of us have experienced greater levels of isolation, loneliness, addiction, when we're by ourselves. And so this morning, I just want to give you a minute in this service to think about who's someone at church. Or, or maybe, it's, maybe they don't go to Christ's community. Maybe it's someone, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a, someone at school. But to think about someone, I, you know, I haven't seen them in a while. Or, I don't really know how they're doing. And I want to encourage you to, and I'm actually going to give you about 10 seconds here in a minute to think of that person. But I want you to think through and then make a commitment to, I want to reach out to them. Send them a text, give them a call, write them a note, send them an email, something. Because we can't do this on our own. So let me give you 10 seconds and just to pause and listen for the Spirit that's prompting. Who haven't you seen in a little bit? Who needs encouragement? Who needs you to reach out to them? Just take a minute now. I'll encourage you if you have a piece of scrap paper or use a prayer request card if you need to, um, you know, write it on your phone, but write down that name or the names that came to mind in that moment. And, and don't take that lightly. Like, take that as, like, that was, that was God prompting me. That name came to my mind, not by accident, because God was prompting that person to come to my mind. And just make a commitment sometime this week, maybe in this afternoon, to reach out to them. And maybe you say, you know, the person that came to mind was, you know, it was like someone who used to serve in children's ministry, and she had blonde hair and glasses, and I don't know, like, Try to describe it to one of us on staff. We'll help you get their name. Or uh, maybe think, I, don't, I, I know it's uh, John Smith, but I don't have his, I don't have his uh, email address. Well, if you go on our, our, our website, there's a place at the top, uh, ChristCommunityKC.org, where you can click log in. And if you have a login, you can log into our church directory. Um, if you don't have a login, it's very easy to, to get one right there. But we have that church directory, so you can find someone's email um, or get their number to give them a call or send them a text do that. And if you need help tracking down somebody, because you're like, God really laid them on my heart in that service, Bill, and I want to track, let us know. We'll help you get to them and send them a note or get in touch. But do that. We need that from one another. We cannot do this on our own. There's too much to distract us from seeking first the kingdom of God. 
And the danger is not that we will somehow be miserable in that life. The danger is actually we won't be miserable. We'll be happy. We'll be distracted. And then all of a sudden it says, then Jesus is going to show up and we're not going to be ready. We need to help one another in this. And Jesus gives us an example actually at the very beginning of the chapter, verses one through four. There's a reason we didn't read those verses until now. Of someone who had the kind of trust that had the kind of confidence that we need to emulate. And it's a woman who is incredibly vulnerable, and yet Jesus looks at her and says, she gets it. Verses one through four, we're going to end with this. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty and all that she had to live on. Jesus is amazed by this woman, but nobody else is. They are looking around, because verse 5, they're looking around, Jesus, look at the temple. Isn't this building, isn't this place incredible? Isn't this amazing? And Jesus is like, no, that, that, this is the Titanic. It is going to be at the bottom of the ocean. But this woman right here, she gets it. She gets it. Because the woman who gave all that she had to live on, her hope and her confidence was not in the building of the temple, but in the one who dwelt in the temple. Her hope was in an unsinkable person. And friends, that is our only security. Our only lasting security is not in an unsinkable ship or an unsinkable building or an unsinkable country, but in an unsinkable person who has sunk down into the grave but has been raised up again and has promised that if you have placed your faith and hope and trust in him, that you too will be raised in the likeness of his life and resurrection by the power of the Spirit. And Jesus sees that this this woman intuitively gets what he's about to teach in that, in that session there with his disciples, that in the end, only Jesus and his kingdom will stand in the end. The only place for our security is the unsinkable person of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just pray that you would have mercy on us. Uh, we remember in the season of Lent that we are but dust. And in Psalm 103, you say, you know, the psalmist says, Lord, remember that we are but dust. Have mercy on us because we so easily, I so easily end up bogged down with the cares of this life. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, he, he says, I forgot to read this earlier. He says, we, our expectation is dulled by parties, drinking, and shopping. Oh, I feel that, Lord. Would you help us to encourage one another in staying alert and staying awake, finding joy in your kingdom? We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit who knits us together as a body to do that. Amen.